This week we talk a bit of rocket science, collecting data on cannabinoids, and how producing cannabis is an art form, coming up next on Critical Grass. My name is Dr. Peter Hughes from the San Francisco Bay Area. I am head of operations at Backbone, and this is the Critical Grass Podcast. Welcome back, people. Hope November hasn't been too rough a month for everyone. A lot of crazy things have happened in the world since we last spoke again, as has become quite typical for 2020, which has been for the most part a combination of Murphy's Law, where anything that can go wrong does, and a heavy dose of expect the unexpected. In positive news, it appears Donald Trump will not be returning to the White House for a second term, giving the entire world a bit of breathing room before the new administration takes over. However, judging by the cabinet picks of the incoming administration, don't expect any fundamental change under the Biden presidency, to quote the president-elect himself, which means we will still be waiting for any meaningful change to federal cannabis policy. However, a huge positive takeaway from the U.S. election is that public opinion on drug policy and the war on drugs itself is changing very fast all over the country to the point where we now have an additional four states to have legalized recreational-slash-adult-use cannabis. So hello, Arizona, Montana, New Jersey, and South Dakota. Welcome to the 21st century. That brings the total number of states with legal weed for non-medical purposes to 15, and another two states voting yes on medical cannabis, namely Mississippi and South Dakota. Tip the hat to SD for the double electoral whammy making it 35 states plus Washington, D.C. to have some form of medical weed on the books. Perhaps the biggest Election Day victory of all, though, was Progressive Oregon, which seems to have taken a page out of Portugal's playbook for dealing with drugs and drug addiction by not only legalizing psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, but also decriminalizing all drugs, yes, including coke, heroin, and meth. The times are a-changing, whether we like it or not, and things are actually looking up for the cannabis tribe, despite the shit sandwich most of this year has been. Fingers crossed this trend continues. At any rate, this week we are going to be dealing with a bit more of the back end of the legal cannabis industry with Dr. Peter Hewson, the CEO of Backbone, a fully customizable supply chain management platform that tracks production, compliance, cost of goods sold, yields, and audit reporting data in real time. 
Peter himself oversees professional services, sales, and partnerships within the company. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from the University of California, Santa Barbara, a Master of Science in Aerospace Engineering, as well as a PhD in Structural Engineering from UC San Diego. I think it's safe to say he's good at designing and building expensive things that fly really fast. He's also a big fan of live music as he co-founded the Northern Lights Music Festival, which was one of the first festivals in the country with legal cannabis sales, so a pioneer on that front as well. Peter and his company are a prime example of how cannabis is much more than just cultivating, distributing, and consuming. His company's services really do form a solid structure to manage operations in the budding cannabis industry, pun intended, which is projected to become bigger and bigger each year as more and more states change their laws to reflect public opinion. I asked Peter when his initial contact with cannabis took place and what made him want to go further down this path. Um, well, considering my parents might listen to it, but it's all in the open right now, probably 16, um, you know, uh, hanging out with the, with the bad kids. Um, usually, right, happens because one of your buddies' older sibling uh has an older sibling who's got weed around um and then yeah i mean really started um 16 i think i was (laughs) i I remember my last two years in high school i somehow figured out how to get my math and science classes to be um the first two classes of the day because then the rest of the day get to do your thing um but yeah that's you know i found it early and it was really just a balance a balance for the uh, too many thoughts going through the head and too much energy. So kind of uh, energy balance maybe is the way to put it. Something along the lines of high strung energy kid and cannabis. And I was really into music, man. I've always been so into music and it always, you know, that always hit, hit, it, hit, it hits better, as they say. So in Peter's case, cannabis has helped him calm his nerves and has greatly enhanced his appreciation of music. Not exactly a groundbreaking realization, but it was enough to motivate him to do something for the plant and its supporters. Now, one of the things that you might notice about Backbone upon first glance is the refreshing lack of blatant cannabis references such as the pot leaf, dreadlocks, reggae music, bloodshot eyes, and other aspects of cannabis culture associated with being stoned beyond comprehension. I asked Peter why his company decided to avoid the traditional imagery and marketing tactics and go for something more to the point. I mean, really out of um, most technology companies in the space, usually the founders and uh, they're about my age, right? And we've been trying to do it, but we've got a very, very veteran Silicon Valley development team behind us that have done very large infrastructure projects. Um, and, you know, we're, we're trying to help people run a business here. So um, it's really just more to kind of, you know, we're trying to be professional. And I think that's really what it came down to. We want people to see us as professional. Um, and I think, you know, ultimately the, uh, the love for the industry is actually shines through getting to know us and our team and what we're striving to kind of do. I don't think it doesn't necessarily be plastered on your website. It's something that you kind of can get an understanding for getting to know people. So um, I don't even know if it was a conscious decision. It was just more we didn't we wanted to, you know, come out the gate, letting people know that we're trying to help people um, scale their businesses. I mean, it's part of this industry, right? I mean, that's and that's what I'll tell you right off the bat. The team that we have, uh, a lot of them could be making a lot more money doing other things. 
Um, but uh, this this hamster wheel is a much more fun uh, hamster wheel. And you get, you know, it's a culture. Cannabis is a culture. And I, similar to what you said earlier, it's I, I the fact that I'm looking at my schedule today and I'm talking to people in Montana, Maryland, Massachusetts, Nevada, and Columbia this week about weed, right? Like, how cool is that, right? And so that's like, always remind yourself yes it's a grind yes it's work but at the same time like what are, look at what are we talking about right here the company's approach to its branding and imagery also reflects the changing perception of cannabis companies and the industry as a whole as they evolve from a mostly underground market into a fully legal one, at least on a local basis. Now, with more and more states legalizing both for medical and non-medical use across the country, the number of companies requiring such services is also due to explode in the near future, as Peter's interview schedule can attest. So how do you go from space engineering to cannabis supply chain management? I guess I'll go, I think I can answer that, but I'm going to go kind of backwards first and kind of give you, uh, came from, you know, like I said, smoking weed for a long time. Um, uh, at the same time, being around it musically, uh, I was, I was getting my PhD in structural engineering 2012, working for, with, you know, working with the Department of Defense. Um, and it, you know, at a certain point you realize that your dinner conversations about what you're doing necessarily aren't, um, you're not, uh, promoting peace necessarily, even though they're paying for school. Um, and so, you know, if I was working on things in Los Alamos on our nuclear arsenal and, um, other things that probably, you know, it paid for school, I learned a ton. Um, and we were modeling things in the computer. There's something called finite element where you actually model 3D structures in the computer and you put forces and boundary conditions on them. And um, after I graduated, I wanted to throw the biggest party that I could. And so we uh, we used to go to a show up in uh, Mendocino Humboldt, you may have heard of, called Reggae on the River and somewhat internationally acclaimed. Um, but that event kind of dwindled um, 2000. 11, 12, and we wanted to, we wanted our, our party back. So we had been promoting events um, over the years. I mean, for many, many years, smaller events, but this was our opportunity. Um, and so we went up to Mendocino, Humboldt County and applied for a permit to throw an electronic or at least everything except for reggae music um, called Northern Nights. Um, and, and that was back in the day when you don't want to say things like Northern Lights, you don't want to be a weed strain. Um, so Northern we came up with and, uh, from there, you know, started to get really ingrained in the local community up there. Uh, and at, right at that time, 2015 legalization was at the horizon here and I was getting permits in the area and the local growers said, Peter, can you help me get some permits? I said, that sounds interesting. Uh, as anyone will tell you, especially when a cannabis industry is starting, going in there and getting permits is that's not even the, the the beginning is wait you have to form a company you have to have like track things and so you kind of go into this rabbit hole of becoming a business consultant right not just a permit consultant and so that accelerated i ended up doing about 54 state licenses for folks um across california across the supply chain and uh that's kind of yeah from from bombs to music to weed Bombs to Music to Weed is more than just a catchy slogan, it's a very commendable career path, considering the current state of the world. 
if only more people in high places, <clears throat> pun intended, would follow suit. Now, one thing that caught my attention with respect to Peter's education and training and initial career choices is that for the first time on this podcast, we have on a literal rocket scientist. Yeah. I, yeah, in a past life, yeah. Um, yes, learned a lot about modeling things. And that's really what I tell myself anyway, what we're doing now is what we're modeling and backbone of remodeling weed. We're modeling weed flow through the supply chain and people doing it with different processes. So, uh, yeah, rocket sciences turned festival promoter and then kind of uh, pushing culture. NASA was one project I was on, but then Department of Defense, they're a little bit separated, but it was all it's all government money um, uh -huh. being over being overspent. Um, and yeah, so I, that that's that's been what the, the mentality is when you're getting permits, especially for things like cultivation, right? What happens is there is a huge list of requirements. So I'm talking, you know, measuring your water use, um, you know, is your well hydrologically connected? Or there's a, like a lot of science and kind of almost thesis or arguments that you have to make on behalf of an applicant to say, look, these are your conditions. These are all the ways in which these conditions are being met. And the follow through and all of that, it's a challenging kind of brain exercise, very operational centric. And so I think like the meeting a set of requirements, right, setting out and saying I will and then actually doing them. And so that's what you really will find is you you'll permits are one thing to get a permit, but to actually maintain and actually all of the things in your permit application that you said I, w I will do, but then actually following through with them is another battle. And this is the most regulated substance um, legally in the world, if you want to call it in a way, right, that people are allowed to do very, very strict. So, I mean, they've got, you got to understand here in California, you've got folks like the Department of Fish and Wildlife. And what happened with water rights here, for example, uh, the, they took, look, in other big ag, you've got huge lobby groups, like, uh, and wine, uh, you name it. And if you, if the government during that time went up to those and said, hey, your water is not your water anymore, landowner, uh, it's ours, and you have to report it. And imagine you bought a piece of property and had a well. Like, no, it's not, right? But if you're in a big lobbying, big ag, they'll shut that down. Cannabis didn't have a lobby group yet. So what they did is they kind of almost took advantage of that fact, applied all these water rules, which they would probably wanted to do anyway. And now that nobody came to back it, now they're being structured. And now those other industries are being affected by these heavy water rules. So I, you can see how the government's taking advantage of the ability. Sure, we'll legalize it, but we're now going to slide these other things that might affect the rest of the other industries. Right. And I think that's a characteristic. So if you look at that and rather than be the victim is turn that around and say, hey, look at what we can potentially demonstrate to other industries. Right. And because we're more highly regulated and we can manage it. So why can't they? So kind of you can kind of flip the script. And I think a lot of people look at cannabis that way, which is, hey, if we can demonstrate if they're giving them this opportunity to be highly regulated, follow the rules. But then there's a little bit of culture mixed in with it. Right. Maybe that can carry over into big ag. Maybe we can set an example for what the potential is. And I think a lot of people really see that in cannabis as an opportunity to kind of show something that wasn't is not corporatized yet. And, and kind of see if we can maintain the culture at the scale. 
The trajectory Peter went on may seem a little unnatural in that space engineering and rockets don't appear to have much in common with the cannabis industry. However, like any other successful industry, there's a lot of organization and planning involved, and as Peter mentions, you also have to know a good amount of science to properly run a company, particularly in an industry such as agriculture, which has a lot of moving parts and one that is developing dynamically. However, you also have to factor in other industries in the area that might be competing for things such as land and water rights. Does the future cannabis industry appear to be headed towards a major fight with, for example, wine growers, one of California's other major agricultural sectors? Depends on where you do it. You got to remember that cannabis has always not been classically grown out in the open, right? And so a lot of cannabis's history is, you know, not like agriculture should be done on agricultural land. There's appellations that should be done on, but it needs to be done like where the soil can take it. There's not a lot of runoff and there's water. So the comparisons haven't even been truly met yet. Now everything's being regulated. Now folks are actually coming out in the open. And I think there's still some data to be had to say how this is all going to kind of boil down and uh, what's going to, what's going to be a commodity. I think a lot of people will argue that hemp, for example, will probably end up as a commodity where THC won't. Um, and so I think there's a lot of uh, arguments still to to be had. But back to kind of your, your point about the kind of conflicts between wine and, and weed, I think it really comes down to they're actually all farmers. Um, it's really their talk. It's really the competition for water, for example, is with the fishermen. Right. Because you're you're polluting. You're both polluting upstream and they're dealing with it downstream. And so it's it's a big lands right thing. You got to imagine. I can't imagine in Poland, someone, the government came and said, "Oh, you bought a property with a well. By the way, that's not your water." You, I don't <laughs> like. Come on, but I want to grow weed, so I'll take it. So it looks like the legal cannabis industry, at least in the United States, is going to have a bumpy road before major issues such as land and water usage are resolved, at least in a legal capacity, as the industry is still in its infancy, and many issues, especially ones on the federal level, have yet to even be addressed. As more and more states go legal, however, the pressure on federal authorities to do something will increase until it reaches a breaking point. Sooner or later, something must give. In the U.S., most cannabis policies have been implemented on the state level, so at least locally speaking, the authorities have had time to put their policies into practice so that other states, as well as other countries, can see what could potentially work for them in the future and what to avoid. However, Peter does have some reservations about looking to the U.S. for advice on how to do cannabis legalization in other areas of the world. And I mean, that's the big thing too, right? I, I want to make sure, especially just in speaking with you, right, looking at the U.S., um, just because the U.S. has done it the way that it's been doing it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the most efficient way to do it. And I, th- I hope that other countries in the world realize that, you know, and Canada in a federal way, they're going through their transition as well. And so I think like if I was sitting in another country right now, I would definitely be looking and seeing how to pull. I think, you know, we were consulting with some of the folks in Mexico and it's like, how do I pull the best from South America, from Canada, from the U.S., all of the pieces understand it and actually roll out a regulatory program that's a little bit more evolved. I think that what people are going to get quickly going to realize is that right now, there's probably one player out there, Akerna, 
MJ Freeway, right? That's kind of trying to, they don't have, they know better than to come to the West Coast. We are way beyond technologically that they're not going to, some of those legacy systems are not going to be able to compete with us. Um, so, but they've got a really wide footprint in the rest of the world, kind of the only other options. And so, um, but at the same time, you know, I'd be careful that the first kind of legacy system from the US coming into new markets and saying, hey, do it like we did it. Uh, right. I would be a little bit hesitant and have a reflection and understand, like, do these people understand my culture? Do I have boots on the ground folks who kind of understand how things need to be catered for our specific country? And that's ultimately where Backbone really itself came from was the concept of um, these. A lot of the tracking and really legacy systems stemmed from the concept of, I've, you know, I have a storefront, medical storefront that has got some restrictions for medical patients only. How do how can I get that approved? Well, if I grow it right behind in my warehouse, then I just sell what's back here and everything's right kosher. It can be tracked. But that's just like plant directly up. But as you build a supply chain, all of the pieces from harvest to final package good cannabis is an amazing plant. It can be made into, you know, hempcrete, fibers, extracts, like it can go in 3000 different directions. It transforms really fast um, and has such a variety of ways it transforms, especially when you look at cannabinoids and the wide range there that we're still trying to understand. So we identified very early on that kind of the middle of the supply chain in cannabis didn't really have infrastructure, um, especially technology wise. And so that kind of resonated to the standpoint, look, there's other industries that have got manufacturing and processing softwares, but you can't just grab that, bring it into cannabis and say, hey, op cannabis operators, use this, right? Because we're a unique breed, as they say. <laughs> and so we really, from a, you know, we were operators, like we had been on farms, we had gotten, like we understood the pain points. And so uh, we teamed up with, uh, it was, this was about 2017, we started a venture fund called Mesh Ventures, which we were just going to invest in the middle of the supply chain, because that's literally what we saw the biggest problem was, was that there was no communication coming back to the farmers other than what they paid per pound, right? But imagine if you know you had the information that your specific farm at your location does incredible in CO2. And when it was done this way and it was uh, created in this fashion, you're going to get the best return and your product is really like the right you know the consumers love it there's no that feedback loop to the farmers never existed it was here's your money never see it again so that was kind of the initial goal here and you know by living in the middle of the supply chain as well you get upstream and downstream visibility right and so it kind of allows you to monitor the flow of of weed through the supply chain and so that's really kind of full circle to where I was going with that is understanding cannabis operations and the supply chain from a boots on the ground local standpoint to say, these are the unique problems for our country or for our location. These are the cultural aspects of our farmers. These are the cultural aspects of the infrastructure we have to support these things. Let's create a set of regulations that is really locally centric, right? And people might think the US did it that way, no. The U.S. just said Colorado did it this way in 2012. So we're all going to do this. We're all going to have this track and trace system. Canada's got it a little bit better um, in the sense of you just like and you deposit to the Health Canada, your kind of monthly inventory and your monthly financials. And if then you got someone who can come audit you. 
right? That's a little bit more logical than the amount of expense that is happening in the U.S. So I just hope that the rest of the world is not just watching to copy it, but is watching to learn from it. Well, it turns out having a degree in rocket science can actually help you operate in a complex industry with a complex but also highly versatile commodity such as cannabis. Now, to touch on Peter's point about playing a leading role as far as legalization rollout is concerned, just because one country or state is quick to implement cannabis laws, it doesn't mean that those laws are foolproof or that they have the best interests of growers, patients, and consumers in mind. Now, depending on who is doing the implementation, there's always a wrong way to do something. Although the legalization movement in the U.S. and Canada has been very inspiring to people all over the world who want to decriminalize or legalize and regulate cannabis and its derivatives in their home countries, it's a good idea to watch and take notes, at least for now. Learning, not copying, is the smarter and safer way going forward. So we now have more and more states changing their attitudes and laws, but what else do we have to look forward to as far as the future of cannabis in the U.S. is concerned? Well, if you look also right now, right, the south of the U.S., right, a lot of folks, hemp is actually being uh, allowed down there. And so folks, and you got to remember before, you know, uh, Ford and before, you know, I would say the 1800s, hemp was grown in the south in a big way, tobacco row, they call it now, right? And so it, that place is really picking up for hemp and hemp processing. I mean, they've got big ag down there, they've got big industrial facilities. And so I think what we're seeing is on the hemp side, it's it's already federal in a way, the FDA has got its hands on it. And so what you're seeing there is some very, very strict regulations that you normally see in like pharma, right? GMP, ISO, and so, and but they don't have a mandated tracking system where you have to keep your inventory up. So it's kind of, it's heavy duty on uh, kind of classic international standards for clean consumption of, you know, farm pharmaceuticals, if you will. And then on the flip side, you've got the THC market, which is super heavily tracked every day, but it does not, it's not at a pharma grade yet. So you kind of have, uh, but that will be the future of the THC market. And so how do you prepare everybody now in TAC to say, yes, we've got it kind of rough with the amount of regulation, but we haven't even seen the regulation that's coming and we're starting to see it on the hemp side. So that's been our strategy is work with the THC, but also we're working big with hemp processors and basically trying to like uh, prepare THC operators for what's coming. Both the THC and CBD sectors of the cannabis industry realize that sooner or later, THC will be fully legal as well. It's just a matter of time. In the meantime, the CBD or hemp sector has been growing rapidly all over the world and for the most part has been developing unimpeded, provided of course the THC content stays below the legal limit, which is completely arbitrary and can vary from country to country. But because of this approach, entire industries have sprung up in a short time, much to the surprise of pro-legalization activists who thought that they would never make any progress due to the stigma of THC. However, it's not just CBD that has vast untapped potential in the cannabis plant. Peter goes into some of the other cannabinoids that could be making headlines very soon. Well, the argument, right, I mean, the standing argument that we're still trying to collect data for right now is, right, it's the entourage effect, right? The whole idea is not just THC or CBD. It's a balance of those two plus all of the minor cannabinoids. And so CBN, CBV, and so what 
what the approach that we've taken is look, we got, we need to build some like historicals here. Everyone's got an idea for that strain makes me feel this way. So we really take pride in what we say. We tie the analytical test results into the material um, with our system, because what happens is if you start to build that database, then you can actually start to present and have an argument to say, it's not THC or CBD, it's this combination of cannabinoids that makes people feel this way. It's this combination, right? And right now you're seeing in the hemp market, we are, we've got some customers right now, like they are essentially only extracting uh, hemp for terpenes. And so what they do is they, it's just like in cedar or in, in a mint, right? Essential oils. They harvest it. As soon as you harvest it, the plant, the terpenes start to degrade. So you have to rush as fast as possible to get it in the steam distiller, pull the terpenes out. Now you've pulled all your terpenes out. And then what you, what's going on is then you get into fractionization. So then what you're doing is you're pulling out all of the different cannabinoids in different ways, recombining them in different ways. And then you're going to see what hits, how that makes people feel. And, but that's a huge database to just try to build, to really be able to go to the government and say, these combinations of these cannabinoids make you feel just enough okay where you're not going to hurt somebody. You know, like that's we have such a long way to go. And you got to remember this this data set, quote unquote, like we are, you know, I think maybe California just started to attach the test results to the regulatory system. And that's just THC and CBD. So we're in diapers, like literally newborns in terms of data sets that are available for us to start building a case. And the only thing we can say right now is THC makes you high, CBD doesn't. So let's stick with those two. They're the most present. But there's a lot more to learn and understand. And I'll take it. And this is kind of fundamentally for everybody uh, in this industry, which is we are nowhere near your final reports like you have you do not have enough you don't even have a year's worth of data to try and turn around and say what am i gonna uh you know what is my profitability going to be this year you're just grow you're growing different phenos this year from last year that's that that mom or those clones how old is that mom it's not gonna act the same way that it did last year right mm -hmm. so there's so many variables and people just have to realize that and i want to be careful because i some say uh, uh you want you know you want to strive to make consistent products right but it's not in like the mcdonald's corporate sense of trying to make just you know as we call them mids out here right and just like low grade it's more about making consistent product that round of cannabis that you just did did you apply a regiment did you were you cognizant of your costs uh did you understand what you did to it you gathered the data so that when you get those performance metrics back, you're like, oh, wow, look at my, look at why, why is that selling so well? Well, everyone is saying it makes them feel so good. Well, what are the cannabinoids that were present in making them feel that good? Okay, cool. Well, what did I do in my garden that created that set of cannabinoids? You could be in the same garden with the same genetics and it could have been environmentals that changed the whole deal. And all of a sudden, your product that sold perfectly last year is going to sell or maybe in a, you might want to send it down a different direction in the supply chain just because you did different things at the plant level. Mm -hmm, so it's yeah. just a lot of information still to gather before anyone can you know, try to convince the government otherwise. And right now, as you said, CBD and THC is what we got. We'll take it as a starting point.
It turns out there's much more to cannabis and selling cannabis than just THC and CBD. And the data analysis used by Backbone is just one of the tools used to figure out not only the ingredients of your cannabis product, but also the proportions of the cannabinoids and other compounds contained therein that will allow you to figure out the best possible product to sell. So if THC and CBD are just the tip of the iceberg, what other types of innovations or novelties about the cannabis plant can we expect to see being pushed by industry pioneers? Terpenes, fractions, and understanding the different combinations and just understanding what most, most weed connoisseurs kind of uh, know. They know what they like, right? But they don't know why, right? So starting to define that why, why do I like this so much? Why do I keep buying that one, right? Um, is it the branding? Maybe, right? Maybe if you're not a connoisseur, but if you look at the connoisseurs, there's um, so many ways to create uh, hash. There's so many ways to create different things that there's a lot of things. And how do you train a consumer to say, I like this, not because of how I feel. Well, I guess that's what it is. It's how I feel. But then how do you as a, how do you train a consumer to say, well, I felt that way because of this combination of terpenes and cannabinoids. Well, I'm going to go into that shop and look for that combination in another product. That conversation doesn't happen yet, right? You don't go in and say, I want this much laminate and this much in this, right? But when that starts to happen, right, then you we can start to actually turn around and get, right? We're not there yet, but I think that's probably where it should end up going is just more consumer understanding of why they're feeling that way when they take it under a certain they smoke it eat it and hey you know however you do it so i think that's a big direction and i think with that feedback loop is how we can continue to kind of demonstrate to the government and say look this combination of things is okay there's good retail databases out there right a lot of the information comes from retail and they understand it so at least on the consumer data it's happening but what's not out there is the wholesale data Mm -hmm. And and that's ultimately, I think, by we're living with as backbone in the middle of supply chain and we're like literally modeling all of the different processes and ways that cannabis can be uh, transformed um, and time test results, understanding temperatures around how you extracted that. And so I think just building a database, not a database for us, but building a database for the customer so that they can become a little bit more efficient in their decision-making, whether it's for money, whether it's because they want to produce a really magical product that no one's seen before. Um, that's really where we stand is to say, let's really, how do we empower a lot of these really almost artists, right? A lot of these folks, when you're creating extracts or, or even, uh, you know, when you're, when you're curing, right? That's a lot of cannabis is an art, right? Okay. But how do you give an artist tools for data? Right. That is a it's kind of like a farmer using software. Right. It's 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 a very kind of and it, this is very classic in cannabis. Right. Big business meets culture. Right. And so if you can figure out how to tie that together. Right. I, I'm not going to say we're going to do it perfectly, but at least I think our intention is backbone. Is if you can tie those two, create, give tools to these artists that empower your boots on the ground operators that you're your night shift, your graveyard shift, guys, right? Everyone forgets about the graveyard shift. But what about that guy at three in the morning who's loading those extractor bags in there, right? He's an artist, right? How does he feel empowered? Where, how does he show his bosses his opinion to say, hey, guys, I told you we should have 
we've I've been wanting to say I wanted to turn down the temperature on this extractor for or this chiller for a long time, but I didn't have I didn't have the data. I didn't want to get fired or anything. But if you just did it and all of a sudden your potencies and your yields and everything is going better, hey boss, I showed you with data and you're kind of empowering these artists to kind of show their craft and highlight their craft. The use of scientific data analysis to run a solid business would seem like a no-brainer, especially in such a young and quickly developing industry. However, a large percentage of growers and processors, even in legal states such as California, seem reluctant to go high-tech or to even go online for various reasons, be it potential repercussions from the authorities or the aversion to unchecked technologies. However, Peter explains why data collection isn't necessarily a bad thing. Well, yeah, and that's not exactly, right? That's, that is a challenge and a half, but I think the don't underestimate the cannabis uh, culture in terms of their want to be um, have information. There's obviously a big scare about my information getting out there. So I think like once people feel a little bit actually comfortable that you're they're not going to get audited in seven years because um, that's the other thing that hasn't happened in the U.S. Right? There's everyone's there's no audits yet, so everyone's got to understand. Everyone's still like, and so we're also trying to say, hey guys, like at least have something. And this is what we do with Backbone is. If you were to get audited, you could go all the way back and it's there. So it's a, it's a careful balance. We got a lot of work to do, but ultimately just, I think culturally boots on the ground operators is where this culture came from. And if we can respect that as we build this, go full circle back to what we were saying about big ag, cannabis can be an example for other industries if we do this right. And doing it right is the key takeaway for the cannabis industry going forward. Having solid data sets from a company like Backbone would also be of tremendous help. So where do we go if we want to find out more information on Dr. Hewson and or Backbone? www.backboneiq.com. Uh, you can go ahead, uh, find, you can request a demo there, learn a little bit more about us. Um, and you can also find us on LinkedIn. Unfortunately, we have to end there, but not before saying farewell to this week's guest. Peter Hewson of Backbone. Thank you so much for the enlightening conversation. Good luck with Backbone and any other projects you're working on or plan to work on post-COVID. Fingers crossed you can uh, put together another music festival soon. I'm sure Californians could use one of those. And uh, when you do, uh, I'll try to hit you up for some uh, all-access passes. Yeah, and to the rest of the world out there, like I said earlier, um, we are, uh, you know, Backbone. We're actually approved in St. Vincent and the Grenadines right now. Uh, we're making some international moves and just know that there is actually some solutions out there of software built by operators for operators. And um, we hope to be able to support you guys. That was episode 52 of the Critical Grass podcast. Only 48 more to go to 100. But hey, it's not like anyone's counting. Many thanks again to Dr. Peter Hewson, PhD, for the insightful chat. Please make sure to check out Backbone if your can of business is in need of some serious number crunching. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with others via the intertubes. If you'd like to help us out monetarily, you can donate to us by going to www.critical-grass.com and clicking the donate button or by going to patreon.com slash criticalgrass and becoming a member there. We'll be back in December with another episode, so don't go anywhere just yet. Data analysis shows my name is still Bogdan, and that ain't changing anytime soon. Stay warm, stay dry, my friends. Ciao.